Hello and welcome to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. This is the 491st show of ROI, and our guest for today's show is Cameron Blev- Dr. Cameron Blevins, Associate Professor of History at the University of Colorado, Denver, and we're going to be talking about his book, Paper Trails, the U.S. Post, and the Making of the American West. Joining us for the second segment of the show will be our history buffs, Terry Toppler and Ed Broders. So to begin with, welcome to the show, Cameron. Thank you so much for having me. I'm uh, really happy to be here. We are very excited. Uh, Our first segment is called Farouk Dinarin, and our goal is just to give our listeners a little bit of background on today's subject. So can you start us off with some basic information on the origins of the U.S. Postal Service? So the Postal Service really started with the United States itself, very, very close to the beginning. Um, a law was passed by Congress in 1792 that established the United States Post Office Department. Um, and there was even clause in the Constitution um, that kind of set up the basics for the mail service. And uh, what I find really fascinating about this early origins of the postal system was that from the beginning, the United States had really committed itself to providing uh, an accessible and affordable um, form of communication and connection for its citizens. And so that continued uh, really on from the very, very beginning of the country and helped knit it together, especially in the early decades of American history when there's, you know, started with 13 colonies and then 13 states kind of scattered up and down the Atlantic seaboard. The postal system was what really kind of connected those uh, those people and those different areas of the country. Okay, so along those lines then, the United States starts expanding very quickly. Um, I assume the Postal Service expands with that. Um, is the, the Postal Service sort of following behind, as it were? Is it waiting for institutions to be plugged in before it becomes uh, a thing, uh, you know, like states or at least territorial declarations or whatever? Or is it right there as the expansion is happening, kind of walking hand in hand with uh, the settlers and so forth who are moving into the new areas? Yeah, the story of the United States for the first, you know, 100 plus years, uh, its history is really one of fairly dramatic territorial expansion. So kind of gulping up new land and territory, Um, going from the eastern seaboard by the mid-1800s all the way out to the Pacific Pacific Ocean. And the postal system is really on the front lines of this expansion process. And so what my work uh, does is maps out that expansion. So imagine, you know, tens of thousands of post offices kind of spreading across uh, the continent. And the basic idea was that a group of settlers would uh, occupy land, oftentimes uh, land that was you know, forcibly taken from native inhabitants. And then as soon as there was a group of typically white settlers there, the federal government would provide mail service, uh, postal routes, post offices to connect those settlers back to the rest of the country. And so the, the uh, postal system was really the first kind of civilian infrastructure that you would find in many, many of these new Western towns and locations. 
Okay, so speaking of Native Americans, since we just had Native um, Indigenous Peoples Day, how did they tend to respond to this intrusion um, into uh, what had been their territories? Um, were they were there issues? I know that you know the the movies certainly have us you know looking at Indian raids and so forth in in the the far west and all of that. Is is that an accurate portrayal of what's going on here or is, are things slightly more peaceful or at least less confrontational <laughs> uh never ask a historian if uh if hollywood westerns are accurate or not <laughs> <laughs> but uh so and our typical answer is it's complicated and it depends on where and when you're talking about um and so there is a lot of conflict and there's a lot of violence oftentimes it's being conducted through the U.S. Army that's kind of waging war with Native tribes. And this is particularly acute from, you know, roughly the 1850s through the 1860s and 70s. Um, but then what I think gets lost a lot of times is that there are giant areas of the West that remain effectively off limits to American settlers for decades. And you can see this in maps um, where you know, all these post offices are kind of spreading into the West, but then there's this almost a kind of stopping line in the sand where they cannot cross. And that is not because there's, you know, no one living there. It's because there are indigenous groups that are actually quite powerful. Um, so two main examples would be the Comanche in the Southwest and then the uh, uh, Alliance of Lakota people on the Northern Plains that were effectively blocking U.S. government and its expansion for many, many years. Um, but yes, the, uh, the, the overwhelming story is really one of conflict. Um, and that's not to say that Native people were not able to resist in other ways and also adapt as well. Um, there's kind of exciting new work being done around how Native people themselves actually turn to something like the U.S. Post and letter writing to lobby for their own rights better service uh, on these government reservations that are forced onto to connect with the loved ones, to spread kind of spiritual um, and religious movements as well. All right. Well, we certainly have a lot more to talk about, so please stay tuned for the next segment of our show. This is ROI on KALA, St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. Special thanks to Cookies and Dreams for being a supporter of KALA. Cookies and Dreams is located in downtown Davenport, Bettendorf by the TBK Betplex, and Coralville, Iowa River Landing, and more locations coming to the Chicago area and Ankeny, Iowa. Cookies and Dreams has a new flavor every Friday. Delivery options include Chow Now, with more options available soon. Thank you again to Cookies and Dreams for being a KALA supporter. You can find Cookies and Dreams on Facebook and Instagram. Hello and welcome back to ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, the radio show where events of history are examined through the discussion of books, journal articles, papers, and presentations. Then historians and history buffs ask the question, what is relevant or irrelevant in today's world? My name is Jay Swords. This is the segment segment of our show referred to as The Kitchen Table. Our guest for today is Dr. Cameron Blevins, Associate Professor of History at the University of Colorado, Denver, and we're talking about his book, 
Paper Trails, the U.S. Post, and the Making of the American West. Our history buffs for today's show are Terry Toppler and Ed Broders. Terry, why don't you start us off? Uh, thank you. Yes. Cameron, you talk about the real history of Western expansion is one of big government in your book. Can you talk about uh, what was one of the greatest myths about Western expansion today? I think there really is uh, an enduring myth around the idea of kind of, you know, a family uh, going west in a covered wagon and carving out the life for themselves on the prairie, right? You can think of this as the little house on the prairie kind of myth. Um, and that's deeply wrapped up with ideas of individualism, self-reliance, um, and in reality, basically the opposite of that uh, was the case. Much of Western expansion by individual settlers was entirely made possible by the federal government in particular. Um, most kind of acutely, which is what I discussed before, was this kind of uh, military campaigns that were being waged against Native people to forcibly remove them from that land and open up that land for white settlement, um, but also through all sorts of other kind of uh, government institutions. So the Homestead Act, which gave settlers 160 acres if they were willing to live on that plot of land and improve it for five years, all the way through what I really focus on, which is the U.S. postal system, um, which connected these settlers, uh, no matter how kind of distant or remote they were moving to, uh, it would extend these lines of communication to these new areas. And so really from top to bottom, uh, the federal government did make the West in many ways. Okay. Ed, do you have a question? Yeah. While we're on the uh, subject of myths uh, or things that have taken on mythic roles, um, it strikes me that nothing looms larger in the myth of the American West as far as the Postal Service than the Pony Express. Um, isn't it really pretty overrated? <laughs> yeah, I think we've set a record here. We've made it, uh, whatever, 15 minutes into the conversation without the Pony Express coming up. Um, yeah, and that's, I think, uh, uh, probably the most common thing that if anyone knows anything about uh, mail service in the West in the 1800s, it is definitely the Pony Express. Um, and so the background of the Pony Express was this was a private business venture that was started by a uh, express company and they advertised this new service where they would carry the mail across the Western United States to California, from Missouri to California, in uh, about 12 days, uh, somewhere around there, at a time when it would take uh, six weeks or more to make that same journey. And so this required a huge investment of uh, horses, employees, these kind of freighting stations, and as you can imagine, was enormously expensive. Um, the company did it in large part as a kind of publicity stunt, which, if you're measuring it that way, was phenomenally successful, right? We still know about the Pony Express today. But because it was so expensive to operate, uh, the company also hemorrhaged money. Uh, its balance sheet was kind of in tatters. It cost enormous amounts of money to transport the mail that quickly. Uh, and ultimately, they only operated for about uh, 18 months or so, so roughly a year and a half. Um, before they sold out to a competitor. And so that's not to say that they didn't serve some important functions. They carried, uh, for instance, military intelligence during uh, the early kind of outbreak of the Civil War. They also carried news that connected East and West at a time when, you know, people were worried that California might, for instance, secede and join the Confederacy. 
But ultimately, I think it's really remarkable how much attention has been paid to the Pony Express compared to how little time it actually operated and how few kind of pieces of mail it actually carried. Well, so having just destroyed our listeners' concepts of the Pony Express, <laughs> let's let's give them something to to latch onto. What is transportation of the mail like? What is this process? If I were trying to get a letter from, say, St. Louis to San Francisco, what what would be entailed in making that happen? The way uh, I kind of try to describe it is you can think of the mail system having two different types of infrastructure. The first of these would be if you were located in a big city and connected directly onto a railway line, you could send the mail and it would move very, very quickly, uh, especially by the 1880s, roughly. Uh, The postal system had an entire railway mail service where Postal employees would actually work inside locomotive cars, special dedicated railway cars, to sort letters uh, on their trip. And that would cut down the amount of time in transit by an enormous amount. Most Americans, however, didn't live in a giant city or next to a railroad line. And so for those folks, what happened was the mail would leave this first kind of infrastructure network, and then they would enter the world of you know a stagecoach company carrying a bag of mail um, based on a government contract uh, alongside some passengers or freight to a mining town located in kind of a distant part of, let's say, Idaho, something like that. Um, Once it got there, the mail bag would get unloaded into the post office, which, again, is very unlike the post office that we might see today. This would be not a post office at all, but just a general store owned by a local businessman. And the businessman was a part-time postmaster and might sort and distribute letters to his customers. Um, Extremely part-time job, paid very little. Um, And so that was the kind of world and network uh, that carried the mail for, again, people living in rural parts of the country. Okay, Terry. Yeah, um, as you're investigating this, what was, was there any mismanagement of the postal uh, system during this expansion? There absolutely was, Uh, and the most kind of notorious example of mismanagement probably came in the uh, contracting division, and effectively what happened is the U.S. Postal System, again, uh, entered into these contracts with stagecoach companies to carry the mail, and in the West, these contracts could actually be quite large, uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars, and so these companies would submit bids for the contracts, And because they were such large, lucrative uh, government contracts, they developed a system of fraudulent bidding, bribery, et cetera, to try to win these contracts. And the postal system uh, really didn't have a ton of oversight over a lot of these rural areas. And so for several years there, they were able to defraud the government of quite a bit of money. It eventually involved a sitting U.S. senator, um, other politicians in Washington, D.C., um, so that was the kind of most uh, notorious example of, uh, of mismanagement or uh, corruption that kind of took place in the in the postal system. Okay, Ed. Yes. Um, say, Cameron, for instance, I live in the Midwest, and I decide in the mid mid to late eighteen hundreds that I am going west, and um, I'm not sure where I'm going. Uh, but even if I told somebody where I was going. Um, once I get there, or if I move around, 
um, do I have to go to the post office and check to see if there's a letter for me? Yes, you do. Uh, and this always kind of blows my mind, which is that, again, if you didn't live in a big city, you didn't have an address, right? So it's not like we didn't have residential mail delivery. So your address was not 1234 Main Street in, you know, example town. Uh, it was really just the name of your post office which meant that the local postmaster had to know who you were. So every time you wanted to send or receive mail, you would basically walk down to the local uh, general store and ask the store owner if there was any mail for you. Um, and so as people were moving around quite a bit in the West, uh, these post offices became these little anchor points for them. And that was where you know you would have letters getting forwarded to you, let's say, at a new post office, but that store owner had to know who you were. So this giant kind of complex network at the end of the day really did rely on these really kind of localized personal relationships, which I always find really interesting. And it sounds to me like there's tremendous potential here for a big stack of letters at the dead letter office. <laughs> there is. And so for uh, listeners that maybe aren't familiar with the dead letter office, uh, this was a office within the post office department located in Washington, D.C., where if a letter was kind of undeliverable, let's say, or the address was un illegible, uh, there was no one to pick it up, uh, they might eventually get rerouted back to Washington, D.C. And the dead letter office was a group of employees, and what I find interesting is overwhelmingly uh, women uh, who would try to decipher the handwriting or track down where, uh, where this person was located, and if they weren't, it kind of was added to this general inventory. And so they kind of cataloged all these different things that they would uh, eventually end up in the dead letter office as little snapshots into uh, what people were sending through the mail. So are there big piles of these letters from the 1800s sitting in a warehouse somewhere? No, no, they would, they would destroy them eventually. Uh, storage is kind of difficult. And uh, again, uh, trying to wrap your head around the scale of how much material is going through the mail uh, you're talking several billion pieces of mail a year that's traveling through the U.S. postal system. And so even if a very small fraction of those um, are, you know, end up in the dead letter office, you're still talking about a lot of just paper, right? Um, and so I don't believe a lot of those uh, were preserved, although there's some are still there. You can actually go to the Smithsonian uh, Postal Museum to see examples, uh, some interesting examples. So, Cameron, that leads me to to the next seems to me logical question this is a, a bureaucratic undertaking ultimately and uh it's a very very large bureaucratic undertaking very quickly um what kinds of growing pains and problems popped up as the system was trying to first be formed and then constantly adapt to this perpetual expansion yeah, so there's uh, it actually loops back to the first question you asked, right, which is, you know, what are the origins of the uh, postal system? And this commitment that I talked about earlier of the U.S. government uh, to providing this accessible service to its people um, ran into some problems of geography, right? America is a really big country, and it's also a fairly spread out country. And so these arrangements that might have worked fairly well when people were living close together, suddenly becomes a lot more difficult to manage when you have people spread across a uh, 3,000-mile-wide uh, continent. 
And so some of the growing pains you see is just fundamentally a lack of centralized oversight. Um, so if the local store owner is the one sorting and distributing letters and that store owner ends up going bankrupt and just you know leaves town one night, uh, there'd have to be a replacement. And it's, again, a part-time job. You're not getting paid a lot of money. And so there's tremendous amount of turnover in, uh, in the actual workforce itself. You'd have post offices themselves also closing and reopening in rapid succession. So it might open for six months, close down for another year and a half, reopen uh, for another two years, something like that. And so if you're an administrator in Washington, D.C., trying to track all of these changes that are happening across you know, 50,000 different locations, it's just an overwhelming quantity uh, to try to manage. And so those are some of the growing pains that you see uh, administrators really dealing with during the 1800s. Okay. Terry. Yeah, the general store kind of sounds like the postal response system today for Americans who travel overseas for <laughs> periods of time and without a specific location. Right. Um, so I have a question, though. How did we go from the general store to free delivery to your home address? Or was it free? So this was a... So this was a process called rural free delivery. Um, and starting in the 1860s, they started to experiment with home residential delivery in big cities. And so for the first you know, couple decades of this service, if you lived in a New York, a Philadelphia, a San Francisco, uh, you could get the mail delivered directly to your home. And this is, again, the model we're fairly familiar with today. Um, starting in the 1890s, there is a movement to try to extend that service to rural areas. And this is part of a larger shift in American politics happening at the time uh, called populism. So this was a rural agrarian movement uh, and the populist party was really calling for government intervention to help farmers and other people living in rural areas um, to kind of fight back or at least balance out the power that they saw as being exercised by financial interests, railroad companies, big corporations. And as part of that movement, they really tried to push for uh, mail delivery, residential mail delivery to be extended into these rural areas. And they were eventually successful in the early 1900s with rural free delivery, which is again, the model that we're more familiar with uh, today that would uh, get rid of these post offices uh, that had to be located everywhere because you had to walk to the nearest post office. And instead you would have these residential uh, rural mail routes where those would get delivered directly to your door. So it was part of this larger kind of um, rural political movement that started in the 1890s and continued into the early 1900s. Okay, Ed. Thanks, Jay. Um, Cameron, one of the other things we see in movies that's taken on a mythic quality is the uh, the uh, post the train being robbed, where the U.S. mail is in charge of um, shipping a large amount of gold or silver or something. Um, and real realistically, how common was it for these trains to just get completely obliterated and cleaned out? That's a great question. I, I'm going to be honest. I don't know the answer entirely. Um, I will say that if you were sending, say, gold or silver or something like that at the time, uh, overwhelmingly, you'd probably send it through a private express company like Wells Fargo. Um, and it would be more expensive to do so. But there are all sorts of other kind of security concerns there. Uh, the U.S. Post didn't necessarily carry 
uh, packages or parcels at least over, I think it was two pounds, something like that, very small amounts, um, until the 1910s. And so during this kind of period of Western expansion, you see right the, the romantic uh, or kind of mythologized Hollywood Western of bank robbers or you know, robbing a train. That's not necessarily going to be um, targeting the U.S. mail just because there wasn't a whole lot of valuable stuff moving through the mail. Instead, it would be going after these kind of more private, uh, private express companies would be my guess. But again, it's a really good question. I'm not sure exactly how common that was. Okay. Uh, Cameron, I have just a couple of questions left, and they both need to be fairly short, so about two minutes each. The first one would be simply, who are the names, if, if there were two or three names that we need to be familiar with in terms of uh, sort of leading, managing, innovating within the Postal Service as part of this expansion process, what would those, who would those people be? Uh, and to clarify, this is talking about uh, in the 1800s? Yes. Gotcha. Um, a couple of different people that I found really fascinating in this book. Uh, so one of them um, was uh, John Wanamaker, who was a department store magnet, uh, ran a big department store based out of uh, Philadelphia, I believe, became enormously successful um in the 1880s and was also a big political operative for the republican party and he ended up taking over the u.s postal system um, when the republican party uh, won the presidency and what's really interesting to me is that again he's this kind of businessman comes from background of a big party operative trying to install republicans and get them elected across the country but he ends up being a really big and successful and i think fairly important reformer within the department. And uh, he institutes all sorts of new things. You see him actually be the first postmaster general to experiment with this process of res residential free delivery. He expands new services. He calls for all sorts of new reforms. And not all of them were necessarily successful, but eventually those did flourish. And so I think it's just kind of a really fascinating look at someone uh, who uh, was not necessarily who you might expect to be at the forefront of something like uh, government reform or innovation. Um, a second character that I think is interesting to know about for maybe the opposite reason is uh, a senator named Stephen Dorsey, uh, who was a senator from Arkansas in the 1870s, and he became one of the central people that was uh, that was kind of embroiled in this corruption scandal that I talked about earlier with the mail service. And I think he has just a really fascinating kind of personal biography, a kind of tragic and almost comedic one in some ways, um, a kind of bumbling guy, but also uh, cared about his family and ended up kind of speculating in real estate in New Mexico. I mean, just a really fascinating person to try to understand the West at this time. All right. So... We always try to give our guests the last word, so we've got about a minute and a half left. Um, Cameron, why do you think knowing about the U.S. Postal Service's contribution to the development of the American West is relevant in today's world? I think understanding the U.S. Post in the context of, say, the 1800s uh, West helps us understand just how important these kind of big, invisible structures and networks can be in people's lives. And I think oftentimes we take for granted or at least don't see or recognize all the different ways in which 
um, these underlying networks that are kind of everywhere and might govern our lives, um, but we don't understand how they actually function and their importance. And so I think all of us probably you know, use the internet on a daily basis, for instance, but very few of us probably understand how that data is actually being transmitted, what is the infrastructure behind uh, all of these kind of systems that are underlying our life. Uh, and so for me, it's more of a testament to the importance of stopping to look, uh, look under the hood and try to understand how these things operate and the ways, uh, oftentimes quite subtle and uh, quiet ways they might influence your life. All right. Thanks for that great answer. We're going to wrap things up, so please stay tuned. This is ROI on KALA St. Ambrose University, 106.1 FM. You're listening to Relevant or Irrelevant. This series is produced at St. Ambrose University's KALA Radio and has been honored by the Midwest Broadcast Journalists Association and the Iowa Broadcast News Association for excellence in public affairs journalism. You can hear this edition of ROI and many previous programs in this series by visiting Spotify, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, plus Apple Podcasts. ROI airs Friday nights at 9.30 p.m. on KALA HD2 and can also be heard at 106.1 FM in the Metropolitan Quad City area. You can stream this show every Friday night at TuneIn.com. Search for KALA HD2. This concludes our 491st show of ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant. The producer and engineer is Dave Baker. Our program manager is Rick Sweet. And the theme song for our show is titled Kayla's Theme. It was written and performed by Mark Zapsapital. My name is Jay Swords. We'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Cameron Blevins, Associate Professor of History at the University of Colorado, Denver. We've been talking about his book, Paper Trails, the U.S. Post, and the Making of the American West. The history buffs for today's show were Terry Toppler and Ed Broders. This is ROI, Relevant or Irrelevant, on KALA. The views expressed on this show are not necessarily those of St. Ambrose University or KALA. We would like to wish all of our listeners to experience the great Pasutu proverb, Hotsa Pulinala, peace, reign, and prosperity. And remember, historians are horrible fortune tellers. Good night. Good night.